This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. The doors of the cabin are open. The windows are open. The wind chimes are clanging. And it feels like spring here in the Blue Ridge Mountains. The flowers aren't out yet. The leaves aren't out yet. But what is out? is Herpetological Spring, which we are going to hear about with today's guest, Caroline Seitz. And she, at least to me and to the listeners, she's a reptile and amphibian expert. Her vocation has been in educating children. And, uh, well, when I decided to finally make this podcast, Caroline is an example of one of the kind of people that was the inspiration to making the podcast. Because in my circle of community, my circle of friends and family, there were all these fascinating people. And I was like, these are the, th- these are who need to be on this podcast. So Caroline is one example of that. She is really good friends with one of my mother's best friends. So I've been to her place before and I've um, she used to have um, dozens and dozens of snakes and reptiles, and you'll actually hear and hear a quite thought-provoking story about her evolution from having a live animal educational rescue business um, into what she's doing now, and kind of dealing with some of the grayness of figuring out her own I guess, ethical compass with how she wants to move forward educating with animals. And I found that very thought-provoking, and I could relate just through my own experiences with hunting and trapping. There's definitely grayness. And in our conversation, I just really found that, and I'm finding as I'm maturing as an adult, that grayness is really just one part of being adult, no longer living in the world of black and white. Now, Caroline is totally what I'm looking for with these podcasts, which is very unique and passionate people. And reviewing this podcast, it's her passion is infectious. And it it has made me think about passion and expressing passion as an adult and how rarely I see it. And, you know, when you learn about people like Mark Twain, it's said that he... Even in his old age, he always had this childlike uh, wonder to him and childlike imagination. And um, sometimes I'm frustrated that I, I that I don't I don't see it in enough adults. And it's not that it's not there. It's here's an example. I I have a a friend who was so excited to learn about a certain plant, and she came over to. Um, learn how to harvest it with someone who was farming this plant. 
And yet she didn't make a peep. And she said afterwards that she was so excited, but she didn't want to, I guess, seem stupid or silly by expressing her excitement about it. And I, I just find that so strange. And so often I feel like I'm really excited about stuff. And when I talk to people, um, it's very easy to feel foolish. Like you're just an idiot child because you're excited about life and the wonder of life. You know, I, I really felt that when I, um, I went down in Southern Virginia to a fur handling class and I was like constantly asking questions and, uh, some of them quite foolish, which is true. They are foolish because I'm the fool. I'm trying to learn things and I don't know anything yet. And it was just interesting to see how sometimes you're just like not even allowed to wonder or not even allowed to ask questions without feeling this intense judgment. So I don't know why I'm thinking about that, but I, I guess it's just because um, Caroline has been able to hold on to this wonderful um, passion um, through adulthood. So if you've been driving around and you've been hearing the spring peepers in the background, whether you live out in the country and you're driving through farmland and there's some wetlands or ponds out in the field, or if you're driving through the suburbs and you pass by a little creek or um, a county park and you can hear that sound of those peepers. And uh, if, if that's exciting you, then you're going to love this episode because we're talking all about salamanders. We're talking all about peepers and frogs and snakes. So if you find this episode interesting and uh, you have kids or you are affiliated with a school or, or some kind of homeschool program and you're interested in reaching out to Caroline, um, you can contact her at kidsnatureshows.com. And on Facebook, it's backslash kidsnatureshows and Instagram, the same. So while this is an adult conversation, childhood seems to be a theme in this episode. And Caroline at the end tells a story about how her parents fostered um, her passion and how that has had a lifelong effect. I thought that was very meaningful to hear. So in reviewing this, it's made me think back to my own childhood memories of reptiles and amphibians. And nothing really came up from growing up in the suburbs of Northern Virginia. But what did come up was summer vacations at my grandparents' home. So my mother is from Belgium. And my grandfather, who was a heart surgeon... Um, him and my grandmother and half of the family live over in Belgium, um, in Brussels and Liège and in these small country towns. But my grandma and grandma lived in this valley, in this kind of like stone house. And looking back on it, I never really had much of a relationship with my grandparents because there was a language barrier. They all spoke French. And while I can kind of get by with my French, I would just sit there and listen to the adults speaking so I really had a relationship with the property and with the house. And when they both died, my mourning was more for that house and the details and the magic of it. It felt like a house in an old film. You know, basically you drive like a mile or so down this little country road with cattle and, you know, fences and uh, farmers. And then you get to this gate that is on the other side of a little babbling creek and you come down this gate and there's all these this like white stone 
gravel driveway. And it's got these like um, sculpted uh, hedgerows, um, you know, like the little squares. And you drive down that and you get to um, a heron, a heron water fountain. And there's like a big stone wall. And the wall would always be filled up with snails that we would pick as kids. We'd pick them off of the wall and put them back on the wall. And as you're driving down that little driveway, there are these beautiful gardens. And they, they actually had gardeners that would come. And there was these beautiful rose gardens with these trellised archways with roses growing on them. And I remember in that garden, there was an old greenhouse that was kind of dilapidated and falling apart with broken windows and peeling white paint. And at the foot of that little greenhouse were these big stones. And I remember me and my French-speaking cousins, we would go and we would lift up this one, this one big stone and underneath it, um, it would be like a little pit, like a few feet, and then it'd be like a little dark mud. And always the, this little hole would be full of salamanders. And there were these pitch black and bright, bright yellow um, ink spot looking salamanders. And, and just now before recording this, I Googled it and there's actually only one salamander in Belgium. And it is called the the fire salamander. That was actually a little startling because, uh, and you'll hear in this podcast that where I live now in Virginia and in across Appalachia is the most biodiverse um, region in the world with salamanders. So big difference between living in a country with only one. And I, I remember as a kid the, the snakes. And one memory that came up was um, I was playing outside um, by myself. And there were these stone steps that the house was in a valley and it overlooked a big mountain that was filled with real dark like pines. And at the bottom of the valley was a river. And in the summer, you'd always hear like the voices of kids, um, Boy Scouts coming down in that river. And from the house, you could look down into the valley at the pool house, which was an old mill. And the mill had been converted into the pool house with an outdoor pool. And, um, and then there was a little island where when my mother grew up, they would ride horses on the little island, and then it was the river. So to get from the house down to the pool, you'd have to go down these big, um, these beautiful, like mossy stone steps kind of through this little wooded trail. And I remember being a kid and running and I was heading for those steps and I was coming down um, from behind the garden through these bushes. And I was coming down these big stone steps that had some leaves on them. And I put my foot down and I heard all this hissing. And I like lifted my foot and there was just like a ball of snakes. Like it must've been like three snakes or, or maybe more. And they were all hissing at me. And, you know, for a little kid of probably like eight, this was terrifying. And so I, you know, I ran off and never really said anything. And again, I, I don't, was never aware of what kind of snakes they had in Belgium, but I just looked it up and there is uh, one venomous snake, the common adder, which is throughout uh, Belgium, or sorry, which is throughout Europe. And so it was it that snake, I have no idea, but it was certainly the size of, of our rattlesnakes here. And uh, I just remember being pretty, 
maybe that being one of my first scary nature experiences. All right, let's get in this podcast. It was super fun and it was super educational, and I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you learn a thing or two. Reptile and amphibian wannabe expert. I mean, I don't know how to explain it. I, I definitely know there are lots of people who know a lot mm. more about reptiles and amphibians than me, but definitely reptiles and amphibians have been my lifelong obsession. I love that so much. <laughs> so I wanted to start this this episode. We're rolling. Okay, great. I wanted to start about um, with what's going on right now. So we're in mid-March. Yep. And I just went out last night with my family on a trip that you normally lead, which you guys normally stay in a little cabin and you go around and you check out these vernal pools for the salamander, what's going on with the salamanders. Right. So right now, what is in this area, so we're in Virginia, what is going on with the salamanders right now? Yeah, so I call this time of year, um, late February, early March, herpetological spring. <laughs> and what that basically means is that this is the beginning of like when reptiles and amphibians come out. And at this particular time here in Northern Virginia, we have spotted salamanders, wood frogs, and spring peepers. Um, and then just slightly to the west, there's also the Jefferson salamanders that come out. And what happens is those species spend the rest of the year basically hidden from our sight. You can go hiking for 10 hours and you won't see a spotted salamander or a spring peeper or a wood frog if you're out, say, in the summer or the fall. But right around the end of winter, all of these amphibians, and these are amphibians, they're not reptiles, um, so they they emerge. They they're underground most of the year. So what, then, like what do you mean? Like literally just hunker down in in the mud. So spotted salamanders and Jefferson salamanders belong to a genus or a group of salamanders called mole salamanders. Hmm. And the reason that they're called mole salamanders is that they actually burrow through the ground like like a mole would, hmm. and they eat worms and bugs and things. And you'll occasionally see them um, after heavy rains. Sometimes they get washed into like window wells. People see them, and then they, you know, post on Facebook, "What in the world is this?" Hmm. You know, because they're actually they're fairly sizable animals. I mean, the spotted salamander is about you know five, six, seven inches mm. long. It, it's chunky. It's fat. It's shiny black with bright yellow spots. It's a striking, striking animal. Um, the Jefferson salamander is a little bit more, you know, um, thin, a little bit more, <laughs> uh, you know, like a model salamander, I guess, instead <laughs> of the big, chunky, uh, beautiful spotted salamander. And the Jefferson um, has like little tiny white flecks, or it can just be jet black. But yeah, so, so these animals spend the majority of their entire life underground, tunneling, burrowing, and eating. And then something triggers them in the end of February. And when I say something, I mean, it's a combination of the time of year and then the weather. And there are certain nights where just a few will begin to emerge and head to the vernal pools where they breed. So um, right there, yeah. I, what exactly is a vernal pool? So a vernal pool um, is a temporary wetland area that does not contain fish. Typically, 
Ah, these no, are fish. like, yeah, because the fish will eat the eggs, mm, right? Okay. Um, so if they if they lay their gelatinous, gooey eggs in a pond that has like bass or sunfish, they'll get eaten. I have definitely seen them utilize small ponds that don't dry up, so they're not classically a vernal pool, but they also don't have fish in these ponds. Um, the fish is really the, seems to be the, the issue <laughs> with the salamanders. You, you can't lay your eggs in a place where the fish are there. Um, so typically, vernal pools dry up in the summer, and then they fill up in the winter. Um, and, and to go off on a completely other subject, so go the marbled it. salamander mm-hmm. also lives around here, also a mole salamander, also breeds in the exact same places. However, the, mole, the marbled salamander is about half the size of the spotted salamander. And marbled salamanders, because they're so much smaller but still use the same breeding technique, lay their eggs in the fall in the depressions. Even if there's no water in these vernal pool areas, they lay their eggs there. And then when the water fills up in the rains of winter, the eggs hatch. They hatch sometimes in late fall or during the winter, and it gives the marbled salamander larvae a head start Hmm. so that they're approximately the same size as the hatching spotted salamanders. Because if this didn't happen, the spotted salamander larva or baby little swimming salamanders with the little feathery gills would eat Mm. the marbled salamander babies. And here's where it gets awesome. So if you go further north, spotted salamanders drop away. Like you you run out of their range. But marbled salamanders continue north. And when you are in areas where there's no spotted salamanders, the marbled salamanders revert to the classic of laying their eggs in the springtime. Wow. So yeah. that's how they deal with the adversity of predation. Yes. Wow. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. So so right now, getting back to your very beginning question, mm-hmm. herpetological spring. That's so, going to be the title of this episode. Awesome sauce. I mean, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I... I always get so happy this time of year. You know, it's been a long winter. And then, say, last week here in this area, we had a couple of days where it was 70 degrees. And the spring peepers just started peeping away. And I went out and I found hundreds of spotted salamanders. I found— Are you serious? Yeah, thousands of spring peepers. Wood frogs are going bananas. There's egg masses everywhere. The birds are singing, (laughs) getting all muddy when I'm out there. It's just the best thing in the whole world. And what it does is it always reminds me that, you know, no matter how— I don't want to say necessarily bad, but how much things change, how much we go through, right? Through losses, through COVID, through things that just are so relentless in our lives. And then all of a sudden, here comes the salamanders, here comes the wood frogs, here comes the spring peepers to remind us that life goes on. They have been doing this since before dinosaurs. I mean, amphibians have been laying their eggs and doing these mass migrations since before dinosaurs. And so even with all the incredible changes that my life has gone through, say, in the past three years, yet herpetological spring is still the same for me. Mm. And so I can be out there hearing those spring peepers, seeing the salamanders, feeling the warmth of spring on my back, and it takes me back all the way back to when I was just a little girl. Mm, And it's such an incredible feeling. I want to hear that about about you growing up, but first let's stick to yeah. what's going on right now. Right, right. So, um, 
what are they doing? The salamanders, they're laying their eggs right now. Yeah, so the first thing that happens is the males typically okay. arrive in the in the vernal pools. Now, I you was said starting, this mass migration. Is that right. part of what's happening right now? Right. So some nights, especially in the very beginning, it really depends on the weather. You might just have a couple emerging from the ground or from under logs and starting to head towards the vernal pools. But there will be a handful of really special nights during herpetological spring where the weather is just right, where it's, say, in the 50s or 60s, and it's raining. Hmm. Or it's just rained, mm-hmm. and the the ground is just wet, and there's mm-hmm. puddles everywhere, and you you can see literally thousands of mm-hmm. spotted salamanders all en masse crawling, crawling across the wet ground mm-hmm. through the rain. Even if there's little patches of snow, if it's warm enough and it's wet enough, they'll crawl right over the snow, mm-hmm. and you'll see them by the hundreds, by the thousands, swimming in some of these vernal pools. Um, that would be one of the mass migration nights. How far do they migrate? You know, that's a good question Mm. that I don't really know the answer to. Um, I'm going to guess, you know, not super far Mm. because these are animals that don't fly um, and they move fairly slow. Um, But I I don't know the exact answer to that. But I do know that there are areas where there are roads that they cross, Mm -hmm. and during those migration nights, um, there are states that will close down certain roads to allow the salamanders to to pass. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully they can use the culverts and stuff too. Yeah, yeah. Um, What are they doing? Are they going to mate? Yeah, so what happens is typically the males arrive first, um, I I think, (laughs) and they drop what is known as a spermatophore, (laughs) which is a packet of salamander sperm, Hmm. and then the female will swim over and insert the spermatophore inside of her. So it is actually, it's like external internal fertilization. Interesting. Right? And then the female can will, you Can you see it with the human eye? Can you see the sperm? Oh, yeah, yeah. You okay. can see the spermatophores. Usually you see those at least a night or two before you start to see the actual eggs being laid. You can go out, um, you know, it's interesting on Facebook, on some of the salamander pages I follow, people were starting to report, oh, spermatophore sighting, you know, <laughs> here, and spermatophore sighting there. That gave us the idea that we knew. And during the daytime, the adults are hard to find because they're either at the bottom of the vernal pool buried under all the mud and the leaves, mm-hmm. or they're under rocks and logs. So you don't always see them during the daytime. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you're going to investigate the pool in the day, you know that there's been activity by the site of the spermatophore. Um, And then a few days later, you'll start to see these large, well, maybe not large, that's not quite right. Um, For spotted salamanders, maybe the size of a child's fist Hmm. of what looks like like whitish jello. Yep. We saw some of that last night. Yeah. And and the spotted salamander um, egg mass is much more compact and um, solid than the wood frog egg mass. People get them easily confused. I wanted to ask that. Yeah. Yeah, so, we saw the ones that look very much like a little jelly ball mm-hmm. with uh, a circle in the middle. So That's the frog. You're the salamander that you showed me a picture of earlier was from, from the night. Jefferson salamander. Mm-hmm. And the Jefferson salamander egg masses look very similar to the spotted salamander egg masses, but they're a little smaller. Mm, okay. And what what you just showed me with your fingers, mm-hmm. that is probably was a Jefferson salamander egg mass. Okay. And see, we don't have those right here in Fairfax County. You have to go a little bit further west yeah, to I'm run in the into Ridge the Jeffersons, the Jeffersonianums. <laughs> I love that. So the the women take the sperm into their body and then lay the eggs. Yeah, that yeah, are fertilized. Yeah, the female salamanders. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then and then yeah, the eggs come out 
And when they hit the water, they inflate, hmm. right? Because if, if you look at the salamander and then you look at the size of the egg mass, you're thinking, no way. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's because when the, I see what you mean. Yes, yeah, when the large. mucus gelatinous covering hits the water, it absorbs the water and then puffs up. Wow. And then when do those little guys hatch out? So it depends on the weather. Um, it could just be like maybe a few weeks. Usually, get give or take. Again, dep- the warmer, the, the quicker. Um, also, some amphibians, and I, I don't know specifically which ones, and spotteds or Jeffersons or wood frogs, but um, as the, t- the water level drops in the vernal pool, it speeds everything up. So if things are cool and the water level stays pretty level— it will take them a lot longer to metamorphose or to hatch um, than if the water level is hot and, and dropping. They, they can speed things up, even to the point of some tadpoles, which, so salamander tadpoles are called larvae. They look like a salamander. They have the legs. They have big feathery gills, um, but they, they have gills, so they breathe water, and they go through metamorphosis, and then the tadpoles probably most people know are baby frogs that also have gills, but they're internal gills. Um, But as the water level drops, some species of frog tadpoles will actually change their mouth parts and go from being herbivores eating algae to having carnivorous mouth parts, and Mm. they'll start attacking their brothers and sisters and eating them so that at least some of the frogs can escape before the, uh, the pool dries up. So, mm. so each year, at least a couple frogs, you know, I mean, e- each frog might lay, you know, I'm, I'm going to say a number here, and I don't know the actual number. I'm just going to say hundreds of eggs per mm-hmm. frog, mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe 100 eggs per frog. It could be, could be more. Um, but of all these, you know, the mortality rate on the juveniles is incredibly high. Sure. Um, you know. So- Are birds eating them and stuff? Everything's Everything. eating sure. them. I mean, so when I was about nine years old, I didn't really know what a vernal pool was, but I knew that if I went to this certain spot down in the woods behind my house at a certain time of year, I could find tons of snakes. And the reason I could is because this vernal pool was drying up and millions of tadpoles, maybe thousands of tadpoles, were, were trapped in these little tiny places and garter snakes and northern water snakes were just going to town like a Las Vegas buffet. They were just like swimming around with their mouths open, just gorging on these tadpoles. And, you know, and the idea I could also find all these giant spotted salamanders and I could find, in addition to the snakes, spotted turtles, which are an an amazing animal that lives in vernal pools. I didn't quite know how special these vernal pools were right behind my house in Annandale, but I knew they were awesome places that I wanted to go and, and look at cr- animals and critters every day that I could. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So I, I want to get back to the whole growing up. Um, but just to quickly wrap up like yeah. my experience yesterday, checking yeah. out the Vernal Pool. So the peepers are going nuts. Oh, yeah. What are the peepers up to? Are they doing the same thing? Yeah, yeah, they are. But peepers, they don't need a true Vernal Pool to lay their eggs. They can lay their eggs like um, marshy areas that are really shallow, mm. ditches. Um, that's a loud cardinal there. <laughs> the one bird I'm, I'm really getting to know here, the cardinal. Um, the Little tiny spring peepers, which are frogs the size of the tip of your thumb. They're so small. They're tiny. And, and we read that they're, it's actually quite a feat to see one. And, yes. and last year, my girlfriend and I, because we have, so 
I live now on a few hundred acres. We rent a cabin. That's so cool. But there's um, a handful. There's two ponds, but there's also a little vernal pool above the pond where we've seen the spotted salamander. Nice. And that one pond gets completely filled with peepers. And we spent maybe an hour down there Mm -hmm. last year. Was it during the day or at night? At night with headlamps. Okay. Especially a green one, Mm -hmm. a green headlight. And uh, we actually finally were able to find like two or three. Yeah. And like you said, they're so tiny. Yeah. and to see the little um, the little sack mm-hmm. um, puff up yeah. and deflate on their throat is yeah. it's so funny. You just like want to laugh. It's so cute. And it's so piercingly loud. You can't believe. Right? It hurts your ears. And it's coming from an animal the size of the tip of your thumb. Is there a reason they're making that sound? Like, is there some mating thing going on or what's oh, happening? Definite, I mean, yes, it's mating. And, and you'll, you'll notice spring peepers start right at the beginning of herpetological spring and their calls, their chorusing will fade as spring moves on. Hmm. Um, in our region, you'll typically hear spring peepers chorusing and wood frogs, um, they kind of make a quacking noise like a duck. You'll hear them in February and March and then they begin to kind of fade out and you hear more and more American toads and pickerel frogs. They have a different call and then they kind of begin to fade out and then as summer goes, all the frogs, you know, you still might hear some bullfrogs mm-hmm. or some gray tree frogs calling in the summer, but springtime they're chorusing and it's because they're mating. This is the 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 big amphibian mating season. So is the sound attracting to attract a mate or something? Oh, yeah, the yeah, best exactly. Sound? Totally. Okay, whoever's totally. got the best huh. song. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, okay, that's cool. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, it's really cool. I can't do it with spring peepers, but I have been able to get in on the chorus with American toads. I've been able to mimic the actual song of a toad. And and I was I was in a like a big ditch pond wetland temporary wetland situation, and there were toads all around, and every one of us was taking turns, and I got my turn, and then somebody would follow me, and then when I was singing, the other toads would wait and listen, and it was pretty cool. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean they're keyed in. When you approach the pond, yeah. even if you're like a hundred yards away, everybody shuts up, it, and it takes like minutes for them to start getting confident again and start yeah. the song all over again. It depends. And it starts, and it starts like here and there, right? Like, beep, 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 right. Beep, beep, and then everybody. So. Definitely, especially on cooler days, that is totally true. Hmm. Again, sorry, the totally thing. I can't help it. Um, But like on Thursday, this Mm -hmm. past Thursday, it was 75, almost 80 degrees, and it's really early in the season, but yet enough in that everybody's had a chance to wake up. So when I was out there having my best day of herpetological spring ever— They did not care. And it was it was the middle of the afternoon, bright daylight, and there were uh, probably a million. I mean, I know that's a big number, <laughs> but probably a million spring peepers. They peep no matter what. And not only that, it was the first time in my entire life that I saw them during the day. They were literally, mm. every time I stepped, they were jumping. It was like, I mean, I saw hundreds of spring peepers. Mm. I could not get over it. It's never happened to me before until this past Thursday, that I saw that many spring peepers, I mean, a huge amount of spring peepers during the day. Prior to Thursday, I'd only maybe seen like one spring peeper during the day, you know? So this is probably going to come out in the next few days. Yeah, So there's still time for people. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So before we get into like your history and your life with all the reptiles and stuff like that, um, what are some, maybe some tips for people who can get out in the next few weeks to oh, go yeah. check out I mean, the definitely. whole vernal situation? 
Absolutely. How do they even begin? Where do you, how do you locate a good spot to find some vernal pools? So vernal pools are all around us. They're in Arlington, you know, Fairfax. They're in urban. So what, for people who don't live in Virginia, you're basically talking about the total, even in the total suburbs. Yeah, total suburbs. Even even in a city, you have the potential of having habitat. Um, So what you want to do is kind of check the weather. Um, Temperatures that are, you know, 55 and above are going to be great. If it's wet or raining, now you're, you're in, you know, really good territory. Uh, Wind tends to make everybody quiet down if it's really windy. Keep in mind, these are amphibians, so their skin is highly permeable. Um, They don't have scales or fur or really any keratin covering like birds and mammals and reptiles have. They have a mucousy covering on their skin, and if the wind dries them out, they can actually die. Wow, interesting. Yeah, so when it's windy... You know, they hunker down a little bit. But yeah, so 55 and above, um, wet or raining, and then late afternoon, evening, until maybe around 9 or 10 at night, oh man, you know, so where you want to go (laughs) is anywhere that you know of that, first of all, you you know, you're okay to be at at night, or if it's during the day, then, you know, anywhere it's okay to be in the day. Um, Ideally, you want to find a place that has puddles of water that are at least maybe six inches deep, Mm. but that also don't have fish in them. Right. Like, if they dry up in the summer, that's that's really great, um, as long as they're at least six inches deep. And a lot of times, your ears will guide you to the correct place. That's what we were doing last night. Yeah. Just following the peepers. Exactly. And and if you go at night, you're much more likely to actually be able to see the spring peepers. So I've been out at night and seen thousands of spring peepers mm. using a headlamp and a mm-hmm. flashlight. It was just Thursday was the first time I'd seen hundreds and, you know, hundreds of them Broad during daylight. the day. That was that was for me really a strange and wonderful experience. Now regarding frogs and salamanders. Um, should we avoid touching them? Because is their skin, like, is our oils on our skin bad for them? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, as I was telling you before we started, everything is gray, right? Mm-hmm. There's no, for, for me, it's hard to have a hard and fast rule because mm-hmm. let me just say, when I was a kid, one of the reasons that I fell in love mm-hmm. with reptiles, amphibians, and the natural world, one of the reasons why I care so much is I picked them up. I was a child. I was like, frogs? salamanders come come to me <laughs> and I would handle them and mm-hmm. look at them and I think one of the reasons why many children get really into herpetology or reptiles amphibians maybe more so than birds you can't as a child pick up a bird and look at it and kids like to they like to have tactile it's creating a relationship really right you know it's, it might seem a bit of a stretch to you but like because I've gotten so into hunting mm-hmm. it's by having some kind of relationship with your body and the animal's body, yes, it's like that creates a love far beyond something you can only see at a distance. That is 100% true. That is, that is so, yes. I mean, and, and for children to be able to, to see an animal is one thing, to be able to hold an animal. And, and again, so getting back to the gray area, yeah, you can definitely hurt these guys. I mean, potentially you can even kill them if you have hand lotion or mm. hand sanitizer or mm. some other chemical on your skin. They Amphibians absorb everything. They even absorb oxygen. They breathe through their skin. Um, so here's what I recommend if you're taking chill. If, if you're a grown-up, mm-hmm. may, maybe not, right? Okay. Maybe not pick them up. Maybe just take some pictures and say, isn't that cool? But if you've got some kids... Um, have them wet their hands, ideally with the water from the vernal pool or the pond, and, and and try not to put any chemicals on their hands before you head out. 
Um, you know, you also, if you talk to the herpetologists out there, they're going to tell you, please disinfect your shoes using some mm. bleach and water solution. There are funguses and, and problems out there um, spreading among the amphibian populations in North America. Um, there's a couple of different funguses that are killing them. Mm. Um, so we don't want to spread this stuff around. Um, but yeah, I think that if you if you can teach a child to be gentle, be respectful, you know, gently handle the animal, get some pictures, have the experience, um, be sure to put it back exactly where you found it. Don't relocate these guys because that's a great way of relocating new viruses and pathogens and fungi that can hurt them. Yeah, um, back to, so I even told you I've gotten into trapping, which yeah. was a whole thing yeah. to see if I felt okay with it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, some people, especially suburban, they'll say, well, you know, there's a beaver problem in the yard. Can't you just relocate it? And, oh, you know, a yeah. lot of times people don't realize, well, you can't just put, no. you know, there's territorial elements. Oh, there's, there's so many different Diseases reasons. elements. Right. You can't just relocate everything. Right, right. I mean, that's that's like, you know, let's just say that somebody comes down from planet Mars and picks you up and is like, oh, cool, cool little human, puts you in a jar, you know, carries you around and then just puts you down somewhere in the middle of the Sahara Desert. You know, I mean, it's it's not not good. And and the for the average person to just relocate a wild animal, even if it's a small little frog, um, the potential ramifications for not only that individual frog, but the spreading of disease, the the making an off balance in the ecosystem, you know, the carrying capacity and all these other biological terms that, you know, yeah, just leave them right where you find them. <laughs> is there anything, um, would gloves at all help? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. So, so when actual field biologists are, are working with wildlife in the field, we always wear gloves. Okay. Um, is there, maybe, are there ones? Always, I know I mean, sometimes they've got yeah. like chalk or something in them. Yeah. Like, do, is there something you want to do? Is there a certain glove? That so, so, but my, my thing is this, if you're not a field biologist mm -hmm. and you're, you're working with a child and the point of the mm -hmm. child at picking up a frog or a salamander is to create a connection, mm -hmm. the glove isn't going to what I would say is this, have the child have clean, washed hands, mm -hmm. have them wet their hands in the water, and then gently, gently handle the animal. Yeah. I've you heard know. with fishermen, too, they do similar, right? You yeah. wet your hand before, if you're going to release the fish, right. you wet your hand first because of that. Um, exactly. Because if you rub the mucus off, you uh -huh. can create damage to the fish's skin, which can then create a, an opportunity for disease in the fish. Mm -hmm. Same thing with amphibians. Very cool. Yeah. Okay, and on this topic... Um, you know, I was reading through your blog and whatnot, which is very interesting. Oh, thank I you. mean, I feel like we could talk for six hours about all this <laughs> stuff. But so salamanders are one of these, um, remind me of the term, they kind of, because of this porous skin, they kind of will tell you the, the health of the whole They're environment. Indicator, indicator species. You got it. That's so right. Can you do can you describe that a little bit? Yeah. So if, if there's a pollution in the environment, chemical pollution, you know, amphibians are some of the first animals to disappear. So a lot of environmental biologists when they're assessing the health of a say a stream ecosystem or you know something like that what they do is they'll go in and sample what species of animals are living in the stream or the the surrounding woods. And if they find amphibians, especially large, healthy populations of amphibians, that's typically an indication that the habitat is not polluted or not overly polluted. Um, there's other species that they look for, you know, um, macro invertebrates. I've done that. I've yeah. gone out with a, a naturalist in my area and 
you put a net in the creek and mm-hmm. then you count all the little crazy little bugs and right. fly larvae or whatever the hell they are. Right. And that's de- neat. And depending on the species, it can also tell you like there are certain species of like fly larvae that you can find in polluted creeks hmm. that you don't find in clean creeks. Right. Or and and some you know, and now macro invertebrates is a little bit beyond my my mm-hmm. normal pay grade here. <clears throat> um, but I do know that there are some that just proliferate in certain types of pollution and some that really require pristine water. Um, yeah. So, so that's how a- are amphibians doing in this region and then maybe America as a whole? How, how are all those species doing? So I'm definitely not an expert in okay. being able to answer this question. I can just tell you the generalities that I read mm-hmm. in the lay people's publications, Mm -hmm. newspapers, and and so on. Um, But amphibians worldwide are, are, you know, disappearing. Mm. Um, I I have, I think I recall that they may be one of the fastest groups of vertebrate animals with a backbone, um, that the more species of amphibians are disappearing than Mm. any other group of vertebrates. I'm not 100% sure of that statement, but um, they're definitely in trouble. Okay. Just last night when I was looking, trying to ID the salamander we saw before sending you an email, I was just looking at the Virginia list of of salamanders. Mm -hmm. First of all, I was stunned that there's like 50. So there's more species of salamanders in the Appalachian region than um, anywhere else in the world except for maybe certain uh, mountain ranges in Asia. But yeah, the Appalachians are the, you know— ground zero, to use a term, um, of salamander diversity. That is amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's so cool. And well, when I was flipping through this list, it has the regions, and it was fascinating to see some of these salamanders are like one county yeah, in yeah, Virginia. Yeah. Or they're at the top of one mountain peak, and that's it. In the entire world. In the entire world. <laughs> my God. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, I, so I've hunted in um, the National Forest yeah. along the edge of West Virginia. Yeah, yeah. Some, like, seriously steep hollows. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, my legs were trembling oh, at man. just carrying, like, 40, 50 pounds down the mountain. Oh, and I camped man. down at the bottom of this hollow for three days. But this was in the fall, and, and I was seeing salamanders just walking down the side of this mountain. That is so So who so knows if it's cool. one of these very special ones. Yeah, I mean, I, if— if I saw a picture of it, I might be able yeah. to ID it. And there's certainly salamander specialists out there that would definitely be able to tell you. Um, but yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, I think we've covered an amazing intro to Herpetological Spring. <laughs> so now I want to kind of get into you. Okay. So um, you have owned this reptile business for decades. So I closed the reptile business right. um, in March of 2020. Right. Yeah, but I, I did. I started a, a, a reptiles. It was called Reptiles Alive, and I created it in 1996 and owned and operated it right up until 2020 March. And the main focus was like children education. You got it. It was teaching primarily children um, all about the wonders of herpetology. <laughs> and and I'm sitting in your in your backyard here in suburban Northern Virginia, and I've been here before back when you had the business. And your basement was completely filled with reptiles and amphibians. That's you, right. Do you want to kind of? I, you said you've sold them now to the person who's carrying so I didn't, on the company. I didn't sell the business. What okay. I did is I actually closed it, and I had a longtime wonderful employee, Rachel Walker. She's fabulous, um, and she volunteered to take over the business to take on the live animals. Um, you know, I have to, it's a boy. Is it a long story to how I got to there? But the idea of those animals going to anybody. Who, besides Rachel, she, I trust her. 
Mm. She's going to take really good care of those animals, you know? And um, I was not going to sell. I don't believe in selling animals, period. Mm. Um, But, you know, I was lucky that she was willing to take it on. Uh, She, I understand, is um, during COVID maybe not doing as much with the business as, yeah, sure. as we had maybe thought she might. Sure. Um, but, but I believe her plans are to continue doing the live animal programs. But, but working with live wildlife and keeping the live animals, um, you know, I, I did the best I could for all of them. And all the animals here were from rescue situations. Oh, cool. Um, but, you know, after I'm 48 years old right now, and um, after basically... You know, 45 years. I've been keeping snakes since I was three. Um, after after 45 years or so, I just... And it, it, this all started maybe 10 years ago in the back of my head, but I was more and more uncomfortable um, dealing with the live animal situation mm. in, in captivity. Why? Yeah. <laughs> um, this is a part that I have very gray area in the sense that I truly... Oh, well, if you don't want to talk about it, we can just skip over and talk about it later. Well, I don't know. Maybe you can help me sort this out. I don't want to sound like a hypocrite. Yeah. And I don't want to hurt my relationships with other people who continue to keep live animals in yeah. captivity. Between you and me, Yeah. I well, can't, I can't, I can't. I just the idea of, of wild animals being kept in cages is just too painful for me now, and I, I just, feel it. I mean, so we so at the height of the COVID scare, when it when it got a little scary with the food shortages. Yeah, I mean, just going to the grocery store and there's not a single piece of meat. Right. And so me and my girlfriend decided. Well, I decided we're gonna have rabbits and we're gonna yeah. um, breed them. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the idea. If things got a little too crazy, that at least we'd have a supply of meat. And we've tried breeding them. It didn't work. Um, I don't know why. I guess the male, oh yeah, two two males and one female. But both me and my girlfriend, and I, I mean, I'm a hunter and now right. a trapper. I kill animals all the time. But see, I'll just, Keeping I'm going to interject ca- mm-hmm. very quickly here and tell you that I used to have a boyfriend who was a total vegan, hippie, mm. bleeding heart liberal mm-hmm. who hunted and fished. Mm. And the only meat items that he would eat mm-hmm. were meat that he or somebody he knew personally had hunted and killed from the wild. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree. Mm-hmm. I mean, as much as I would like to be a vegan, and I'm not, and I do still buy meat from the grocery store, which I wish I didn't, mm-hmm. um, but the idea of of hunting, you know, an animal that's lived its life in freedom and has one really bad day, yeah, and that's it. That's exactly how I versus feel about an it. animal that's been. Yeah. yeah, I feel I literally feel bad for these rabbits, even yeah. though they're in a cage. You know, we might end up doing chickens, and I feel like you can let chickens kind of free range. Y- yeah, but rabbits you can't really let free range. Right. So I do just feel bad about like having an enslaved creature. Yes, and yes, and you know. I really look up to farmers and I agricultural people. And so I this really is not... look up to zoos that exactly. do good jobs. And I have so many friends in the in the zoo and wildlife education industry who who are doing great work with their live captive wildlife. It's just me personally anymore. I can't I can't be responsible for it anymore, even though I've been doing it. My entire life, I, and I know it makes me a hypocrite now, and I and I lay in bed That's at life. night. That's called trying, life, right? And I'm trying right. to resolve mm. this, and so I don't know how I want this translated in the podcast yeah. because 
it's something very deep and meaningful for me right now, but it's I need to be really careful about, again, my relationships that I have with people who are important to me, who mm-hmm. are still operating zoos and live wild animal shows. Mm-hmm. For me personally, again, I just, I, I, I can't do that anymore. Yeah, I feel you. And I don't think what you're saying is, I, it's just honest. And yeah, life is gray. And, and I kept snakes in cages mm-hmm. in my bedroom or in my basement from the time I was three mm. until the time I was 47 years old. Right. So, <laughs> but it, and, and like you said, they were rescue animals. They, they well, except for the ones I had when I was a kid. But yeah, mm. the, the ones I had when I was a kid, I kidnapped right out of the woods, right down there. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> um, no, I feel what you're saying, and yeah, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that as someone who now kills, I I'm thinking about this all the time. I there's, I mean, I've probably had dozens and dozens and dozens of nights where I can't sleep because I'm questioning, what am I doing? If I love these creatures, why am I doing this? Why am I killing them? Even though I do think there's a noble element to it all, especially Mm -hmm. the trapping is kind of, you have to really think if this is okay. And um, there's, I lose so many nights of sleep, but I think that's just part of being a human. Right. It's like, and you know, it's just all is gray. And yeah, it's that element of where are you coming from? If you're coming from to educate and if, one member of the species is in a cage for its life, but you're spreading education and spreading love for these creatures for the entire species of it so that human beings care. I don't know. So I used to have um, all different kinds of non-venomous or harmless um, snakes and lizards and turtles and frogs and salamanders. I even had the occasional um, alligator or crocodile that would come in through animal control. Um, We had the occasional tarantula or scorpion. I did have a Nile monitor lizard here that got um, probably around four or five feet long, including its long, long tail. And it was one of the most special animals that I had here. That that Nile monitor lizard was um, really friendly, which is not typical for that species. Um, really personable and just was seemed, you know, seemed to, I don't know, seemed to enjoy the human contact. That's hard to say with reptiles. No birds, no mammals. Um, I specialized in the less than cuddly critters, I suppose, although I think they're very cuddly. Um, but yeah, so that's that's what we used to have. Um, and, you know, in any given time, I probably had anywhere from 30 to 40 individual animals. You know, my, my journey from Reptiles Alive using live animals to presenting kids' nature shows using wildlife puppets, um, it, it really started probably a decade or more ago. Um, when I was much younger... I kind of viewed reptiles the way I think most people view them as uh, emotionless, maybe feelingless. You know, I, I didn't really think about their inner lives, right? I was like, snake is so cool. I love them. I thought they were spectacular, obviously. I read everything I could about them. I, you know, spent all my days in the woods looking at them. I kept them. I cared for them. Um, but I, I, don't think I really respected them as individuals. You know, they know when you're there. You know, they're not a rock. <laughs> they're not a robot. 
Um, they, they will follow you with their eyes. With snakes, the tongue flicking becomes more apparent. They, um, they can act frightened of you. You know, fear is a legitimate emotion that reptiles can exhibit by either trying to get away or trying to bite you so that you'll let them go. Um, you know, and when I would mow the grass out here, I had a large African tortoise that would sometimes follow me around and occasionally try to attack the lawnmower. Um, you know, and it was just different animals had definitely, you can tell, but it took me you know, a long time. And I would, I would say this, like if you walk into somebody's house and they have a pet cat, if it's, you know, a typical cat, you don't, it's just a cat to you, right? But if it's your own cat, you, you begin to recognize it as an individual. Um, and with reptiles, you know, most people have zero experience with reptiles. I mean, maybe they've seen them on TV. Maybe they saw a garter snake in the park. Um, but they're not having any kind of a connection with those reptiles, but because I spent so much time with them on such an intimate level, handling them, working with them, taking care of them, um, you know, taking them to the vet and caring for them when they were sick, I just, you know, their lives and my lives were intertwined. I was able to develop that kind of a close relationship and a kind of respect for the each individual um, that I don't think I would have ever developed had I not been working with the animals. And again, it, it didn't, there was a long period of my life where I loved reptiles, completely obsessed with them, but didn't really think about it. It just it wasn't even a thought that each of these animals has its own little life and its own little head, and it wants to do what it wants to do. Um, these are vertebrate animals. They have a brain stem. They have, I mean, a brain. They have a central nervous system. They feel pain. Absolutely, that's that's been proven scientifically. Um, they feel hunger. They feel fear. They are individual creatures. And the more that I fully began to appreciate them as an individual and the more I developed empathy for these creatures, the less and less comfortable I became um, even though I was running an, a rescue, theoretically, I mean, these were all um, animals that came into me as a rescue, and I used them in education programs, so it was all, you know, for a good cause, I just, the empathy, putting myself in their skin, um, it was just getting harder and harder, and I, and I started thinking, you know, what makes me really happy is teaching about nature, teaching uh, the the joy, the wonder of nature. But I didn't want to have to use captive wild animals to do that anymore. Um, and so my mom, who has passed away and never got a chance to see the new kids' nature show puppet shows, suggested wild animal puppet shows. And she would joke with me when, when I would, you know, be talking about, in addition to the me developing empathy for each creature, there's more and more regulations on keeping live wild animals. More and more school systems are banning having live animals in their schools. And so there were other issues too. And mom would always say, well, how about those puppets? Time to get those wild animal puppets. <laughs> and um, yeah, so it was, it was definitely a journey for a variety of reasons, just, you know, moving away from from keeping in my mind individuals 
in in you know captive situation. And and let me just say, I mean, I, I kept them as good as I could. Um, I had professional animal keeper come and take care of them. My staff who did shows, I trained them all how to be gentle and safe. Um, we treated the animals as best we could, but they were still captive. And and now you know I have puppets. And you know what's really funny is when I'm working with the puppets, I still I still think of them almost as animals. It's so funny when I'm driving to do a puppet show. And of course, during COVID, I haven't done a whole lot of driving to do shows. Um, but when I do, and I have them all in what I call the car seat, because we, we used to call the travel containers for the reptiles their car seats. And I think of the puppets in their car seats, and somebody will say, oh, you know, do you want to go do this or something after you, you finish your show? And I'm thinking, no, I can't. I have to get the animals back. And I'm, wait, no, they're puppets. They can actually stay in the car. <laughs> it's such an interesting and liberating and freeing feeling. <laughs> I get pretty disturbed sometimes when I see, like, um, on Instagram and stuff, just yeah. like, I think it's a lot in Russia and in Asia, but just like raccoons living in just like someone's white-walled apartment. Oh, it's yeah. like a raccoon doesn't want to do that. No. That's not what a raccoon's life right. is, is wants to be. Right. Um, so I got two questions. One was I saw on your blog that at some point in your life, you've had a million jobs, all kind of nature-related, yeah. um, wildlife-related. Mm-hmm. But at one point, you were you were going into houses to get like S- snake removal. Snake yep, removal. Yep. Snake Do you removal. have any cool stories from that? Oh my goodness. That was a crazy job. Um, yeah, I mean, that that job, I went out and for the most part, I would get to the homeowner or the business owner and the snake was, of course, long gone. And it was very rare that I got there and was able to actually remove the snake, but they still had to pay me. Um, I, I worked for a, another company. I was a contractor. Um and what they and the homeowners by the the head guy of the business they were supposed to be very well informed that what they were paying for was for me to inspect their property and then give them a report on how the snake probably got in and how to repair the home so that it wouldn't happen again. And that if I happened to catch the snake, that was a bonus. <laughs> but of course, as you can imagine, a lot of people were less than happy that I came there and they had to pay you know X amount of dollars and no snake was removed. Um, the other thing is that when I was doing that job, I was about 20, 21 years old, and I look young for my age, and I looked even younger for my age back when I was 20 or 21. I'm, you know, barely five feet tall. At the time, I was probably like 90 pounds, (laughs) and I'd show up, and they'd be like, you're going to be the snake removal person? (laughs) I was like, yeah. You could crawl into all the tiny spots. Right. It's true. Um, and yeah, I, I went into attics. I went into crawl spaces. The scariest thing for me was you'd go into these spaces, attics and crawl spaces, and there might be a wasp nest. Mm. No thanks. Or maybe a raccoon. Rot row. Mm. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, my house. So I live in this little old cabin, mm-hmm. and um, the foundation's a stone foundation. Yeah. Um, and we've got good like- for snakes. That's exactly what I was going to say. We've got <laughs> copperheads under yeah. there. We've got black rat snakes. Awesome. Every time you go into the house to like change the water filter because yeah. it runs on like a pond water that comes through the house, I have to change a filter like every month. Um, 
I mean, there's snake sheds all over the place. That's down awesome. There. It is awesome. And my girlfriend has a has a um, a magical ability to find like full like the like a brand new shed that's Sweet. perfectly intact with the head and the eyes all the way to the tail. Um, and oh, why am I bringing that up? Oh, because you're talking about the snake room. Yeah, I haven't room. seen many rattlesnakes or anything like that, though I know they're around. I've only ever seen one while hiking in the Shenandoah National Park. Yeah, they're they're around, but they're... So the, the timber rattlesnake that you're finding there mm-hmm. is not exactly a threatened species, but it's a species of special concern. Really? The okay. lowland or coastal plain version, which is also timber rattlesnake, but some people call it a cane break rattlesnake. Cane break. I yeah. love those names. They're yeah. so like old timey, <laughs> like something from an old book. Right, right. Cane break rattlesnake. <laughs> um, so that is uh, considered an in- state endangered um, species. So in-, in the state of Virginia, which is where we are, there's a population of what's known as Crotalus horridus, um, timber rattlesnake, a.k.a. canebrake. But the state of Virginia somehow recognizes these two populations um, as-, as being separate because they provide the state protection status of endangered to the canebrake population, which is found right around Virginia Beach in the Dismal Swamp. Swampland, love right? that. And then there's an entire section of Virginia, the Piedmont, where there are no rattlesnakes. Mm-hmm. And then once you get into the mountain section of Virginia, it's the timber rattlesnake. And they're not given any, like, real special protection that I'm aware of right now. You know, regulations change, so I could mm-hmm. be wrong. Um, but it's it's interesting how right down the middle of Virginia, you, you don't find any rattlesnakes. And, you know, historically... I, I remember one of my biology professors saying that there was a population of timber rattlesnakes found where they built the American Legion Bridge where the um, Capitol Beltway crosses from Virginia into Maryland. Hmm. Um, and that when they built that bridge, the wood rat population crashed, which caused the timber rattlesnake population to crash, hmm. which caused no more timber rattlesnakes. But that that's like the Piedmont. So. Hmm. I don't quite get the distribution of of rattlesnakes in Virginia. Interesting. But they're less common than other species. Yeah, and interesting. And for anyone who is living in Virginia, we got three venomous snakes, right? We got the copperhead, rattlesnake, and water moccasin. Right. Also better, you know, scientifically known as the cottonmouth. Cottonmouth. Yeah. And that at least in Virginia, without getting hurt, if you can look at their eyes, all three have slits. All the... Wait, I think it's that... (laughs) Uh, in Virginia, I, I, I can't. I can't let you continue. I've got to stop. Okay, you. I've right, got to stop. Right. So sorry. No problem. So, so the whole eye pupil thing. All right. All right. All right. First of all, first of all, <laughs> if you're close enough to see the pupil of a snake's eye, hello, right? You're too close. Well, okay. Well, number, wait, ha- number two. Number two. If you're in a low light condition or the snake is in a shadow, their eyes open to a complete circle. So you can be looking at a copperhead that has a round pupil, right? Oh, Depending on light conditions. Okay. 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 And then on top of that, sometimes people have pet snakes like boa constrictors that have cat, you know, slit shaped pupils mm-hmm. and they sometimes get loose. So let me just tell you this. You know, if, if you're not an electrician, I don't recommend sticking a screwdriver into an electrical socket. And if you're not a snake expert, I don't recommend messing with any snake at Mm -hmm. all, right? If you just leave all snakes alone, it doesn't matter if they have a round pupil, a cat pupil, or no pupil. If you just leave that snake alone, you'll be fine. It's when you start messing with it um, and you start using old wives' tales that you've heard, you know, my daddy's cousin's uncle's best friend said, mm-hmm. right? If you can just if you can just see a snake, let your mind relax and say, "Oh, there's a snake. I think I'll just leave it alone. You'll be fine." 
So what happened for me was okay. this two summers ago, we were going camping uh-huh. and I grabbed some, so uh, the heating in my cabin is wood. So I wanted to grab some wood, which I hadn't touched since winter, just to go camping. And I took my, I went and grabbed Ooh. a piece of wood from the log. Uh-oh. Or uh, from the wood pile. Yeah. And as my hand came up, there was a, a, a copperhead mm-hmm. under my hand. So my finger must have been like one or two inches from this thing's face. Yeah, and chilling. It, chill. And yeah, what happened? Nothing. Nothing. And that is because But we got to watch it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you definitely do. But snakes are not aggressive. I mean, I mean, evil. we got to look at it. We came, yeah. we came outside, took yeah. some pictures. And and what did it do? When did it chase you? No. Did it attack you? Nope. Did it jump up and try to bite you in your face? No, ma'am. Did it like <laughs> you know chase down your uncle's cousin? <laughs> <laughs> no. No. And just kind of sat there. I just chilled. Yeah, it was just chill. That's yeah. a typical copperhead. They're just, you know, they're just a wild animal. They're just not out to get you. <laughs> okay, this opens up a question that I was thinking about while driving over here. Okay. So you've been teaching, your main focus was educating children. Mm-hmm. So I've, Still is. Still is. I've heard very often that um, there's this theory or idea that it, like on a genetic level, humans have a reaction to spiders and snakes because back when we were like apes that um, we had to watch out for these things because it would kill us. You know, I've also, I'm very interested in dreams and the symbolism. I personally have had so many dreams and nightmares about snakes, not recently, but like, you know, huge anacondas. You know, I know a lot of people have snake dreams. I've never had a salamander dream. I've never had a frog dream. There's obviously a ton of symbolism with the snake. Yeah. You know, from the Bible a, to way before yeah, it's that. Embedded in, it's in embedded our, in, in us. not just Western civilization, but Eastern civilization. Correct. I mean, in humanities. <laughs> Correct. So my question is, when you, when you use, with your old business, when you present the snakes to children, mm-hmm. what, do, was there something that you noticed like an, an instinctual response from children? Oh, yeah. Can you, can you expand on that? Definitely. So when I would present snakes to young children, their instinct was to come up and want to pet them and touch mm. them and ask a million questions and see them up close. Wow. And they just expressed wonder, curiosity, mm. joy. Mm. A snake? That's great. <laughs> the snake lady's here. Mm. Yay. <laughs> as the children get older, as I went into junior high and high school, you'd start to hear snakes. A snake? <laughs> I don't want to see that. So as, as humans get older, they get more exposed to all of our civilization's embedded Things, right? The Bible, the newspaper, the anaconda movie, the snakes on a plane movie, their friends, their parents, their grandparents, their uncle's cousin. And they hear stories. They're told things. They see things that are either untrue or exaggerations. It's what we do as a society about things that we don't quite understand. And as the children got older, their um, phobias, their fears, their... um, discrimination of species discrimination um, became more and more apparent. So the young children, they had no preconceived notions other than curiosity and wonder. Oh, I love that. That's so cool. Yeah. I was really interested to see what that question, how that would play out. Yeah. That's really fascinating. Huh. And so as people get even older, how do you, like, how do you, middle-aged people, what is their response to snakes? Yeah. So, I mean, unfortunately, you know, so I don't often tell people my, you know, when I first meet them that I'm a total snake nerd. Um, you know, 
for a variety of reasons. But one of them is, interestingly enough, if, if you meet somebody for the very first time and you tell them that you love dogs, have you ever heard somebody who you've said to that say, oh, man, let me tell you about the time I chopped the head off this dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Right? Or, I think you would quickly get in your car and drive off. Right? You would. And yet, oh, my, I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how many times people find out or I tell them that I love reptiles and snakes. And first thing they do is they tell me about the snake they've killed or the snakes they've killed or the snake their uncle's cousin killed. Um, they tell me how dangerous snakes are, mm. how dumb I am for getting close to them. Mm. Um, there's a lot of negative, crazy drama that mm. is involved with some adult individuals when they find out that somebody else likes snakes. Wow. Yeah. That that is fascinating. <laughs> I love the way that you that you put you worded that. Yeah. Wow. Huh. People don't see snakes the way that they see other animals. Snakes mm. are just in their own unfortunately maligned category for for no good reason other than that does seem to be where we've put them, especially in Western civilization. There are definitely other civilizations where snakes are embedded in the civilization, but in a much more positive light. Mm. Um, Native Americans mm. and, you know, Eastern religions mm. and things like that, if they don't necessarily worship the snake, they respect the snake. There's not this, shall we say, association with the snake being the devil. Right, 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 right. Um, just... Um from my own experience, I was doing a, I was making a film up in New York, and I wanted to have this final shot with a snake slithering on a rock. Cool. So I found someone on Craigslist who had a um, a pet mm -hmm. um, rat snake, and she drove out and placed it on the rock and whatnot. But I had never really handled a snake, so um, letting it like move up my arm was there's something very because it kind of has that squeeze. It's awesome. It's awesome. Awesome. And the way that I felt. It was sensual. Yes. It was it had an erotic and a sensual and a um I don't know, very calming, calming feeling as this gentle squeeze was slowly moving up my arm. And 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 the skin is so cool. Yeah. And and soft in a yeah, soft, strange way. In a strange way. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Not slimy, not gross, exactly. not yucky. They feel awesome. They do. I wanted to ask you about um, you said your brother yeah. is um, a, a turtle biologist in yeah. Hawaii. Have you gone out with him, and, and what, what does he do? Yeah, yeah. I've definitely been out there. He's retired now. He actually um, he he works the occasional volcano lava tour boat as a as a guide, or he does um, he does fishing boats. He's going out on commercial fishing boats in Hawaii and things. Um, but he used to for for I believe ten maybe longer years, um, he worked for the Hawksbill Sea Turtle Recovery Project on the Big Island of Hawaii out of Volcano National Park. And um, yeah, he ran this program where he would go into these um, Hawksbill turtle nesting beaches and protect them from predators and um, monitor the eggs. And what he did was actually run the program. The program consisted of teams of volunteers that would fly in and live there on the island for the, the duration of the breeding season. And he would manage all these teams that would go out to these beaches and camp. Um, and so he, these, this involved, these were remote 
inaccessible beaches. So he would have to hire helicopters to drop water. And and these are on lava beds, so there's no water, right? And he would have to drop water and tents and, you know, all the equipment. And then the, the volunteers could drive as far as they could. And then they would have to hike in. And then they would live out there on these beaches. And, you know, he had to deal with if there were medical emergencies, like... And primarily, these were volunteers who were um, either still in uh, undergraduate school or had just graduated from university. And so this sometimes was their first time away from not just home, but from, or, or not just university, but sometimes from their home, but, you know, in, in wild camping situations. And, you know, they were also young, <laughs> having a good time in Hawaii. <laughs> and so they'd end up in all kinds of situations that Will would have to rescue them from, like going down in a lava crack and cutting their foot or getting stung by a scorpion on the beach. Um, yeah, it was a it was an intense program. And I mean, he could obviously tell you way more about it. I was lucky enough to be invited to go along with him on some of the beaches Um and I had the privilege of seeing adult female hawksbill turtles coming up to nest, one of which, um, and again, we had all the special permits for this, and this was the whole, you know, activity had not been tagged. So Will actually stopped the turtle, and we all jumped on it, including me. I, I was able to touch the turtle. It was very exciting. Um, and we we did all kinds of measurements. We took some blood, and we tagged the turtle. It was because it was a new female that was not in the program. Um, and... She was incredibly strong. I mean, a sea turtle, you don't think of them being on land as being strong, but they're incredibly strong. The flippers were, I mean, it was like she was pushing us along in the sand. It was amazing. How big are they? Yeah, good question. So th- that turtle, I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe like three feet from the t- top of the, the beginning of the shell to the back of the shell, um, and maybe a couple hundred pounds. Um and then I was also, I, I went at just the right time where the adults were still nesting, but babies were also hatching. So I saw both in the same night. I got to see adult sea turtles coming up and laying eggs. And I also saw main emergence where the egg, where the nests collapsed and all the babies came out and, and headed their little, their little tiny flipper feet. Now they're the size of like a half dollar. Um, into the giant pounding surf of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> and and we didn't touch the babies. I mean, I mean, you know, some of the volunteers, okay, I touched one of them. I picked it up. And but again, we we had we had all the permits. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was amazing. But you wanted the turtles to make it to the ocean on their own so that they could be imprinted um, with that beach. And so if if we did pick them up, it was just to do a quick wait you know, a quick, maybe a quick photograph or that kind of a thing. And then we put them right down, right where they were. Um, The main focus of that project, though, was predator control, which can be a little bit controversial um, in circles. But Hawaii is, you know, has an invasion of exotic introduced species that have devastated uh, populations of native Hawaiian wildlife. And, um, you know, the hawksbill sea turtle was... I mean, really, until this project was started, and I think it was started in the 80s or early 90s, I mean, the hospital was on the way out in the Hawaiian Islands. And this project, when it was started, um, really brought them back. And now I understand they're, they're doing really good. Will's no longer associated with the program, um, but it's very successful. Which predators? Like, wh- what do you mean? Yeah. So the main predators um, of the hawksbill sea turtles were rats, cats, feral pigs— a mongoose. 
Yeah, lots of mongoose. The mongoose was introduced? Yeah, so rats got into the islands of Hawaii, and, you know, human beings decided, well, let's introduce mongoose to eat the rats. Well, the rats are nocturnal, the mongoose are diurnal, so they never meet. And now, if you ever go to Hawaii, if anybody out there has been, you know what I'm talking about. These mongoose are everywhere. And if you're like, if you've got your picnic lunch sitting next to you, on the beach, a mongoose will run right out of the bush and grab your lunch and run off with it, laughing at you the whole way. <laughs> oh, my God. So when you were saying the um, the imprinting, so if a human were to pick up the turtle as it hatched and walk it to the water, it wouldn't, I'm assuming... I'm assuming turtles come back to where they're yes, born. Yes, they do. And it wouldn't know that mapping if, if you were to That is what I have heard from some scientists, that some scientists believe that there is some imprinting going on on the walk through the sand to the ocean. Fascinating. Um, you know, as to how, you know, 100% true that is, I don't know the, the answer. But I, I do know that that's, um, you know, an issue that is brought up in the scientific fields. So... So, so I, I try to do the best I can. <laughs> fascinating. Yeah, they inv- all those invasive animals. Yeah. That's a fascinating. I guess I'm assuming they were doing culling and stuff they, like that. They were, yeah. yeah. I, I was, I was, um, I have, yes, some experience actually in dispatching um, a mongoose or two. You're luckily, a trapper like me. Yeah. <laughs> luckily for me, um, there were no cats caught and because that would have been, I'm a, listen, I, I'm a total 100% proponent of cats being indoors 100%. You should not be letting your cats roam outside. And introduced cats or feral cat populations are devastating to wild populations no matter where they are. Um, But I still love kitty cats, so I'm glad that I didn't have to deal with that. Yeah, um, me too, because we have, there's a feral cat roaming the property where I live, and I know how terrible they are for birds and voles and all that. Birds, reptiles, amphibians, insects. I can't, I just, I grew up with a cat. I can't, right. the idea of just shooting it one day, right, I can't right. do it. I, I mean, and, and let me just say that in, in the Hawaiian project, they they definitely used humane methods yeah, to yeah. dispatch the animals. Um, and in fact, one of the cats that my brother caught was so friendly um, at the time. His girlfriend ended up adopting it. It was a kitty cat. And they named it Lucy. Nice. So, you know, I mean, it's Glad a tough, Lucy had a partial yeah. wildlife and a partial domestic life. Yeah. Uh, man, that's so cool about those turtles. Oh, yeah. And so they're in a much better shape now, huh? Yeah, yeah. The the population of the Haw- the Hawaiian hawksbill sea turtle population is doing better. Um, you know, and there's hawksbill sea turtles throughout the world, you know, throughout the oceans. Um but, you know, different different nesting beaches, you know, a population can be wiped out in one section of the world if a beach becomes unnestable. I don't know if that's a word, mm. <laughs> you know, but if it's developed or um, in some parts of the world, people eat sea turtle eggs. Mm. Yes, um, yes. And that can basically wipe out an entire population. Mm. It's fascinating that you, is your brother your only sibling? He is, yeah. It's fascinating that you two, it's beautiful that you two can... Um, you both have a very similar passion. Yeah, yeah. And it came to us not from our parents. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, I was going to say, as a kid, when you were saying you would go out in the swamp, yeah. would would he join? Would you do this together? Um, n- no. I mean, sometimes, I guess. Um, but, you know, he, he was kind of more into baseball and cars hmm. and things like that. And I was definitely just nature girl, obsessed with snakes and frogs. Um, but, yeah, so he, he had... Um, he ended up working with the sea turtles in a slightly different way. He started out um, here, of course, and then he realized that Northern Virginia was just too urban, too mm-hmm. civilized for him. And he went to um, 
school at Evergreen State College in Washington. I've heard of that place. Yeah, yeah. total like green, hippie, school, hippie yeah. awesome <laughs> school. Like it was awesome. And when he graduated from there, he saw a flyer for a, um, I think a temporary or an internship in Alaska at Wrangell St. Elias Park. And then he, he did that. He did a survey of some mountains in Wrangell St. Elias, biological survey. And then he saw an advertisement to drive a bus to and from an airport in the middle of Alaska for bush pilot, like, who would take people into this hunting station that there was no roads to, you know. And so he drove this, bu- this bus. And then he saw a flyer for a position in Hawaii doing sea turtle stuff. And so he signed up for that, thinking he would do that for, you know, for one year, and then he'd move on to Australia or something like that. But as he said, I just got stuck in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> that is neat. Yeah. Um, wow, how cool. It, you know, also I'm thinking, I'm, so I'm in, a, I'm in a men's group, and we often talk, families, like one of the main things we talk about. Um, and... You know, especially with how goddamn crazy everything is right now, just the tension within families. So it's beautiful that you two can relate on that level. Yeah. Like, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I'm really, both me and my sister, we're both Pisces. Mm -hmm. And it's just beautiful that that I just really want to make it a priority that we can be friends further and further into adulthood. Because too often I see the breaking of the splintering of siblings. And I, so I consider Will to be like my best friend. I love that. I haven't seen him now in two years. Um, the last time I saw him was a week before our mom passed away. Mm. And he I'm so, had, I, you know, last time I was here, yeah. I met your mom. So I'm yeah. sorry to hear that. Thank you. Um, he had flown here because she, she wasn't, do, well, actually he flew here for his normal trip that he does on the mainland once a year. And then, um, he stayed a little longer because she, you know, was was in failing health. And then he flew back to Kauai. He lives on Big Island, but he went to Kauai for New Year's Eve party. And then the next day, the hospital said that our mom was not going to make it. Mm-hmm. So he flew all the way back here from, I mean, he just flew, you know, the 6,000 miles. And then two days later, got back on a plane, flew all the way back to D.C. Um, and then my mom was in intensive care and and the doctors all told us that she was not going to make it and you know should we take her off the the artificial ventilation and um both will and i agreed to do that and then she survived hmm. and it was shocking and then the hospital discharged her and then um Will flew home because everybody was telling us, you know, you need to look at getting a stair lift in your house. And, you know, and and, and mom and I were thinking, how are we going to, you know, we're going to make, th- it was, and then she died. Hmm. <laughs> like, it was, you know, we'd all prepared, we'd all prepared for her to go. And to the point where the preacher came and sang songs and my mom was, um, you know, very much a, a churchgoer to a local church here, and, and all of her friends came and held hands and sang hymns, and and we we said our goodbyes and we cried, and they they took her off, and the doctor said, you know, she'll probably go in the next hour or so, and then it was six hours later, and then it was twelve hours later, and mom was asking for a grape, mm. <laughs> and then so I went from crying and and assuming that I had lost my mom mm-hmm. to having her back mm. to then losing her. Mm. I mean, it was, it was pretty intense. But so, <laughs> um, so my brother 
who had just flown back to Hawaii and then mom um, passed on like two days later, you know, and, and he said, you know, should I come back? And I said, you were here mm-hmm. when it was the most important. You mm-hmm. know, you you were here for her when she needed you. You know, there's there's no reason. And so I figured I'd see him in a year because he usually came. I, I would usually fly out to Hawaii every year or two, and he would usually fly here every year. But then COVID. Mm-hmm. And so now we haven't seen each other since, you know, January or like December, early January of 2019. So it's been, you know, almost two years now. I'd love to have him on the podcast next time he's in town. If, yeah. you, if you let me know in oh, advance. He'd, he'd be great, man. That'd be awesome. He, he has lived a fascinating life. He was on one of the lava boats when the lava um, came and hit the boat. What do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> so, and then what happened? Yeah. Did you just burn a hole through the boat? Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, and he and he's worked he's worked on fishing boats off the coast of California. Cool, and I mean all over. Yeah, Will's a pretty awesome dude. Cool. Um, before we wrap it up, I feel like we've gone through a lot of awesome yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Before we wrap it up, I did want to ask um, because we didn't get too into your childhood. Right. Was there? A, do you have any particular memories about your experiences with reptiles or animals that were are particularly meaningful, like a really heightened memory? Boy, oh boy. I mean, that could be a whole nother podcast, right? Mm. I mean, there's so many. Is there a one that you could pick? Or? Um, you know, I'll, I guess since we talked about my mom, I'm just going to mm-hmm. end it once again talking about my parents. Yeah. And I'm going to try not to cry. Because I lost, um, Will and I lost our dad um, about three years ago. So my, my dad passed and then my mom passed within a year of each other. And they, they were divorced, but they still loved each other. They had a really good um respectful relationship, but they had been divorced since the 80s. Um, My dad was a federal worker. Um, He worked for the Office of Inspector General for the Department of Labor, and his life was as a public servant having nothing to do with nature or wildlife or snakes. My mom was a mom, um, my, my parents divorced when I was about 15 years old. So for the first 15 years of my life, my parents were together. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom until I was like maybe 12. And then she went on to be an administrative assistant once again in the Fed, FedGov. I'm a FedGov family. Um, nothing to do with snakes or reptiles. And yet when I was three or four years old and started saying how much I, I love snakes, my parents, instead of reacting in fear or or turning me down and saying, you know, what's wrong with you? They encouraged me. Uh, I, they helped me find books in the library about snakes and reptiles, and they would read them to me. Um, anytime my dad found a snake, we had a large backyard garden, that whole area that you can't see on the radio, but the, my entire backyard was in vegetables and strawberries and cherry trees and apple trees. We cultivated this whole yard. And my dad would find harmless little brown snakes or garter snakes. And he would, Caroline, here's a snake. <laughs> and I would, you know, and he, he doesn't, he would tell me, he's like, I don't, I don't like snakes, but you like them. So here you go, you know. And, and my mom, you know, she let me keep snakes in the house, you know. And they would get out all the time. 
and they would slither down the hall. And Dad, would, I could hear Dad when he'd be getting up to go to work in the morning saying, Caroline, come and get this frog out of my shoe. <laughs> and, and did they then say, you can't have any more animals? No. Instead, when I was uh, around eight or nine years old, they started um, driving me to perform uh, animal programs. I started, I did my first animal live reptile show for a nature center here in Annandale when I was nine years old. And I started getting bookings when I was nine. And my mom or my dad would pack me in the car with my pet garter snake and my pet box turtle and my pet toad. And we'd go do a show, you know, and they would, they would just sit in the audience and watch me do a show. And, um, I joined the Washington Herpetological Society when I was like nine years old. And they had these field trips. And dad would take me and go with me. And, and you know, I was the only child. I think I might have been the only female. It was like a group of like 30, 40, 50, 60 year old white men professor guys, right? This was the 70s. And we'd be stromping around in the woods and there'd be a big old racer or a big old rat snake. And of course, who would see it? My dad. And he, and he would jump back. Oh, there's a big old snake over here. And of course, all the herpetologists, we'd all rush over and pick it up and be excited. And my dad would just stand there. And <laughs> So all I can say is that my parents really taught me so much. They, they taught me about so many things. You know, a lot of them is just acceptance and, and, and love and just feeling... I don't even know how to put this into words, how grateful I am to have had the very best parents. I, I wouldn't be where I am now. I wouldn't be as um, happy and as um, content as I am if I hadn't had the teachings of my mom and my dad. That's so beautiful. That is such a, you know, I don't have kids, but that's a goal in the future. And that is such a beautiful lesson you just said, that yeah. to foster the passion in a child right. has made, you have, a, you have had a successful and passionate life. Yes. And your parents completely fostered that. Definitely. They saw you had a, an, an intense passion and, and that has created your entire life. Basically. Yeah. I mean, they, they not only, you know, just tolerated it, they encouraged my, my passions. They, mm. they showed just an incredible amount of, of encouragement and, and love, you know, for, for me in, you know, and I, I guess I'll end just, it's so funny though, how, how even when we're grownups, how we still have a parent child relationship. I, my dad lived in Florida, um, in the last couple of years of his life. And I would go down there and of course, you know, I'd go out and look for snakes. And in Florida, there's Eastern diamondback rattlesnakes and all kinds of cool critters. And we were at Fort DeSoto Park and there was a very large Eastern diamondback rattlesnake in the parking lot. And I got out to, you know, take some pictures and, and do a video. And my dad's like, look out, there's a snake there. And I'm like, dad, have you met me? <laughs> like, you, you know, I, I know what I'm doing. I'm not gonna, you know, I, I, I understand how to work with snakes. I've been doing this for 40 years. And he's like, I know, but you're still my little girl. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, what, what came to mind is I'm really interested in psychology. Mm -hmm. And I forgot who exactly said it. But um, basically, they're saying the appropriate way to have a meaningful adulthood is to find what you loved as a child and to bring that yeah. into adulthood without reverting into a child. 
So I always told people when I operated Reptiles Alive that if my nine-year-old self could see me and what I'm doing oh. right now, she would be over the moon. She would be mm. so incredibly unbelievably excited. My nine-year-old self. You would have been a hero to yourself. I would have been a hero. Like I, <laughs> she, my nine-year-old self would have literally worshipped me. Wow. And I think she still would, even though I no longer am keeping reptiles um, and doing live animal shows, but I think she would still be completely you know, ecstatic about me still continuing educating people about wild animals and about reptiles. And I think she would also completely understand that, you know, yeah, we, we kept animals for a long time and we, we learned so much from them and they gave us so much joy and, and, and they helped us educate. And now it's time for just a new chapter in education. And I think that's what my nine-year-old self would say. Man, I love it. Yeah. This has been an awesome conversation. This Thank is great. You. I've had such a great time. Thank you. I guess um, in closing, um, I know you're saying things are a little held up with COVID. You're doing things via video, but I guess, I don't know if they have to be in Virginia, but if you're interested in your, if you have kids or organized schools or homeschools, yeah, yeah. So how does someone check out what you do? Yeah, so the name of my business is Kids Nature Shows. Um, it's kidsnatureshows.com, and we're at Kids Nature Shows on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and I'm doing actually a lot of shows. And just this past week, I got 20 bookings. Um, I'm doing shows in person in mm. the um, like Northern Virginia, suburban Maryland area. Okay, cool. um, but I've done virtual shows as far away as Slovakia. Nice. Yeah, I've done virtual shows in New York, virtual shows in Hawaii, um, and I have uh, both live virtual shows that I can do on Zoom and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. or I also offer pre-recorded shows that people are, you know, uh, recently one of the local library systems purchased six of my pre-recorded virtual kids' mm -hmm. nature shows, and they're... Um, Available for checkout on the library's cool. webpage. Could you give just in closing a quick summary of what the shows are? Yeah. So Kids Nature Shows, my, my new company, I offer right now about 12 different wild animal puppet shows. Um, animals uh, like squirrels and opossums and dinosaurs. I have a great white shark named Chompers. Um, <laughs> It's so much fun because, you know, now I'm not limited. I can have a Tyrannosaurus Rex. I can, <laughs> I can have, I have a sloth named mm. Lento. I have a bald eagle. His name is Potomac. Mm -hmm. um, and the puppets all have their own personalities. And I have different shows with different themes. Um, you know, like the rainforest show, of course, the reptile show. In the reptile show, I have an alligator who likes to um, hit me in the head with its tail. I have a 17-foot-long um, puppet boa named Bianca. She's amazing. Um, and then I have, you know, just so many shows. Animals in spring and summer, animals in fall and winter. And sometimes schools, um, they'll just have me come out every couple of months, you know, or, or like I said, hire like six different shows mm -hmm. and one just kind of comes each month. And it's so much fun. The puppets are great. The kids love the puppets. Mm. I mean— It sounds like the puppets have a life of their own. They do. Which, you know, I have a guy in my men's group who carves masks. Yeah. And, you know, the, the masks— they have a character. Yeah. And when you put them on, like something comes out. They have their own spirits. Yeah. So, I, you know, I watched a few of your videos um, with your puppets, and it's obvious that the, pupper, the puppets have their own life. Yeah. And, and I have to tell you, 
kind of just like with an animal. The more that I work with a puppet, the more I get to know the puppet, the more of its personality is coming out. I, I really feel like my shows are great, but they are getting better and better. Do you, you don't make them, do you? I do not make okay. the puppets. Um, there is an incredible wildlife puppet company called hmm. Folk Manus Puppets. Nice. And they make the puppets that I use, and they are incredible. Nice. Yeah. Wow. Okay, well, this has been an awesome, um, what would be the right way to say it? Like a, oh, I was going to say not a prayer, but not, I don't know <laughs> what the right word is. Like a an ode to... Herpetological spring. <laughs> Yay! Herpetological right. spring. <laughs> <laughs>